Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of March 2019 and this is episode 105. On today's programme, I talk to Emeritus Professor Michael Jury from Murdoch University, Perth, Western Australia, on his research project that explores the lives of British officers killed on the Western Front during the Great War. I spoke to Michael from his home in Western Australia. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to look at your research project looking into the lives of British officers who were killed on the Western Front during the First World War. Before we look at this in detail, could you start by telling us about yourself and how you ended up being interested in this subject? I was born in Bethnal Green in London, Tom, and uh, was brought up in Blackheath in South London. Went to university in the University of York. Uh, graduated from there and got my DPhil in history from there in 1975. I uh, then spent five years lecturing in Yorkshire and then took up a lectureship in uh, Murdoch University in Perth in Western Australia and I stayed there for the rest of my career. Uh, and uh, I uh, uh, retired in 2015. In that time, I spent most of my research career in the late 18th century. Uh, and it wasn't until 2010 uh, that I began seriously looking at uh, the Great War as a possible research project. It was around about the time I was beginning to uh, think about retiring, coming on, uh, arriving. Uh, and uh, I thought that I'd, as I'd just finished a, a book on the British Secret Service during the French Revolutionary Wars, there was a chance for me to, to make a clean break. And I was influenced uh, by uh, one, one book in, in particular, and that is um, Simon Ball's book, The Guardsman, which is uh, uh, the history of uh, Harold Macmillan and three of his friends. Uh, and it's got some very interesting chapters on the First World War. Uh, Macmillan, um, Little, Oliver Littleton, uh, and Harry Cruikshank uh, were all uh, were all involved in the Battle of Flercourt-Corselet on the fifteenth of September, nineteen sixteen, the middle battle in the, the Battle of the Somme. Macmillan and uh, uh, Cruikshank were very badly wounded. And then they went on to have these careers. Little, this was Littleton's great day, the 15th of September. Um, and then they went on to have these great, uh, great careers in politics after the war. And it got me interested in two things, in the officers, particularly in the, in the officer class in the First World War, and also um, looking at the battle itself and how many people or how many officers were involved and how many uh, were killed. Um, so I decided to start a research project on the 15th of September. Um, I called it One September, September Day on, on the Somme, Life, Death and Remembrance. And I was just, uh, I spent, I, I was very naive at the time. I uh, 
thought that there would possibly be as many as 50 officers killed that day. When I got to 400, I realised that this project was actually rather larger than I had anticipated. Um, but at the same time, I thought that that idea, that concept of life, death and remembrance could be taken to look at the officer class more widely. And I put in for, to the Australian Research Council for a grant on, on, on this project, on the British officers in the First World War. Pretty much to my surprise, I actually got the grant. And so that's how the research really took off. Now, we're going to talk about three uh, research streams within the broad remit of your project. Now, the, f the first of these is called Six Weeks, and, it, and it, it examines the idea that the average life expectancy of a British officer on the Western Front during the Great War was six weeks. Now, is there any truth in this legend? The short answer is no, but the longer answer is actually quite, quite interesting. It's not the only idea about longevity in the in the British in the British Army, Cecil Lewis, for example, in his book on the Sagittarius Rising, about the um, the Royal Flying Corps at this time, uh, actually wrote that pilots in 1916 were lasting on an average for three weeks. That's in 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 1916 too, and you know that there the there's the idea that uh, rear gunners in bomber command in the Second World War only had a life expectancy of, of, of six weeks. Um, neither of those are true either. It's more a perception we're looking at here. There are a number of authors writing who experienced the First World War, fought in the First World War, who wrote their memoirs 10 years after the uh, armistice, and some of them actually sort of mentioned the, uh, this idea about short uh, life expectancies, uh, particularly amongst sub subaltern. But those statements are, are actually, were made at a time, were hedged with, qualifica with qualifications. Probably the best known one is Robert Graves' uh, statement in Goodbye to All That in 1929 in which he said that the average life expectancy of an infantry subaltern on the Western Front was, at some stages of the war, only about three months, by which time he'd been either wounded or killed. So the, the qualifiers there are that it's three months, that he's talking about casualties, not fatalities. So those two factors have to be taken into account with his view. But... He was he writing much later, nearly forty years later, in nineteen sixty-eight. Uh, he he claimed that a soldier who had the honour to serve with one of the better divisions could count on no more than three months trench service before being wounded or killed. That's pretty much what he said in nineteen twenty-nine. But then he went on to add a junior officer, a mere six weeks. So that's where. By that time, he'd picked up the idea of six weeks, 40 years after he'd first spoke about three months before becoming a casualty. So <clears throat> I think that the six weeks myth emerged sometime around or after the classic time when disillusionment first set in. And that is part of the dis disillusionment process from the nine, late 1920s onwards. Now, in order to test this 
idea, which I, be I believe was wrong, I decided to try to find, uh, taking one area, which was the Battle of the Somme, and trying to find officers uh, who had become casualties during the Somme and work out their length of service with the battalions. The only way to do that is to find was to find war diaries that had, as they should have, all should have done, they, they had the dates in which officers first turned up to the battalion. I could only find 12 battalions that served on, on the Somme, which actually had those dates, as well as the casualty dates. So I, I, worked, I, I went through all those uh, war diaries and took out the names of all those officers who had joined the, the, uh, all those subalterns who had joined the battalions from the 1st of May 1916 onwards, followed them through to when they either left the Somme with the battalion or had become casualties. And, and from that, I calculated their casualty and, fa and uh, fatality rates and the length of time they served before becoming a casualty. There were two, I found 266 officers, of whom 130 became casualties. And 45 of that of those 130 were killed. So there was a casualty rate of 48.9% amongst these subalterns, nearly nearly half, and a fatality rate of 16.9%, which is about the fatality rate, I think, for the officer class as a whole during the war. The interesting figure, though, was that the average length of service of casualties was 38.5 days, that is, just under six weeks. I don't think, though, well, obviously, the, the six weeks myth is, is wrong because there's 50% of, the, uh, of the soldiers, uh, of the subalterns, who, in fact, didn't become casualties at all, and they served however long their battalion served on the Somme. So what I think is the case is that you, you can find at certain times during the war, as, uh, as uh, uh, Graves suggested, occasions when uh, subalterns probably had a very short life expectancy. Another area that you've been examining is the idea of the missing. Can you tell us about that project? It really revolves around our understanding of the memorials to the missing on the on uh, on the on the Western Front, most people, if they were asked what you what you mean by the missing, would say, "Oh, it's those people whose uh, those men whose names are on on those memorials." Uh, yet, actually, the it's it's known that more than half of those names on those memorials weren't at the time officially declared missing, but were actually officially declared killed in action. And it got me thinking that if one takes, one looks from the perspective of the families and the relatives of the, of the, of the soldiers, you get a very, and who went through the process of their uh, loved ones becoming casualties, then you'll see that they actually had, they were different people to the people that you would expect, or many of them were, from the names on the memorial. And also you would expect uh, uh, them to have a different idea about what, the missi what missing actually meant at the time. So I think that there is a, a distinction to be made between our idea of the missing, which is based on the 
memorials which were started to be erected in the late 1920s, again at the same time as the disillusionment ideas began to spread. And the idea of what the missing meant actually during the war and in the few years immediately after it. Ironically, a much larger number of, of soldiers and of officers were declared missing than are on the numbers that are on the uh, uh, memorials today. If one looks at what is the most accurate, or probably the most accurate statistics uh, that came out of the war, and that was the official medical history of the war, which was published in 1931, it shows that the total number of missing uh, on the Western Front were about 100, just under 175,000, of which 4,000 odd were, were officers. What they meant by missing, what those stats mean by missing, is that they vanished. They are the ones who were no evidence was ever found uh, to explain what had happened to them. So their names would be on the memorials today, but there are over 300,000 names on the memorial. And the others are those who at the time were officially reported as killed in action, yet subsequently their bodies were lost. The memorials tell us those whose bodies were never recovered after the war, and that would include the killed in action, those killed in action who who were lost, and as well as those who vanished. So I, that is a very different idea from the idea of the missing that existed dur during the war itself. Ironically, the numbers involved are much larger during the war, more than that, because those who were declared missing also included prisoners of war who whose families were told they were missing before, and they had to wait sometimes up to three months before they heard that their uh, their relatives had have, have actually been uh, put in, uh, were actually prisoners of war. It, in, it included large numbers of, uh, of men who were initially found to be missing, but were subsequently found either in hospitals or were found to be found to be dead. The key to understanding my distinction is the way in which casualties were reported at that time. The adjutant general in in the BEF from 1914 was responsible for casualties. He, the reporting of casualties, was the responsibility of the CO or the adjutant of every battalion, battery, and um, cavalry regiment. Their duty was to report casualties to the what was known uh, to the adjutant general at, at the base and if they were officers also to GHQ and GHQ and uh, the adjutant general's office then sent those reports of casualties to the war office in London that war uh, the department responsible for casualties in in the war office at that time uh, was called MS2 cas casualties uh, short for military uh, military secretary room 2 casualties all reports went to them then the those who casualties who were officers their names were then sent to another uh, room, MS3, MS3 CAS, and it was MS3 CAS that reported the casualty to the next of kin. Now, that was the way it worked, and it was official doctrine 
in the War Office that the only the only reports that they would accept would be those that came from either GHQ or from the Adjutant General's uh, Department. Any any other report coming that was second, they would regard as second hand and wouldn't uh, wouldn't accept them. So that if if someone, if an officer in a battalion at the end of a of a battle or the end of the uh, whatever event they've been involved in was reported when they when they met to get, when the whole battalion met together and they had a roll call if he was reported as being killed in action then that was it he was officially killed in action and there was nothing anyone else could do about it afterwards the family couldn't couldn't query it he was killed if however the battalion reported someone as missing or as missing believed wounded or as missing believed killed that report came down to uh, uh, to the war office and then there could be measures taken to check what had happened to these uh, to this officer and then other information could be brought to bear as well and although that other information would never actually be sufficient to declare this person uh, this officer to be killed if there was enough of this secondary evidence by the end at the end of six months the war office would officially declare the officer presumed dead and they are the ones who are the vanished why do you think it's important to look at the missing in this way i think it's important so that so that we can understand better the what the families of the of the casualties actually faced at that when they when they had these this news it's not a simple question of them just hearing that they're dead and that they've been buried it's a question of receiving a telegram saying your son is missing then a few days later that he's missing believed wounded then a week or two later they may actually get a telegram saying he's now officially killed each family actually undergoes a sort of roller coaster of emotions following the first indication that their relative had become a casualty and it really I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is look at the uh, idea of the missing from the point of view of the families and what, I, what, what are your plans to do with this bit of research I'll probably try to write a book about the missing and the vanished but I need to get more information on, on uh, I've really focused on 1914 and 1916 so far I need to focus a bit more on 1918 and the final part uh, that we're going to look at today is the life of an officer, Leonard Wall. Tell us about him. Well, he's just an ordinary young man born in 1896 in Cheshire. He's one of the officers that I've been, or one of the soldiers that I've been looking at in another area that I have a particular interest in, which is uh, stained glass window memorials, war memorials for individuals. And I've been looking at all those memorials that um, were set up established in in kent during during the first world war and wall came up in that part of my research as i say he was quite an ordinary young man who he went to clifton school when war broke out he joined the territorial force the west one of the west lancashire battalions um royal field artillery which became the 55th West, West Lancashire Division when it when it went to France. In training, they went down to Kent and were they spent several months down there. Uh, and while he was there, he he got in he got engaged to to a young lady 
who was the daughter of the uh, rector of um, St. Martin's Church in, in Braisted in Kent. They went off, he went off to war and uh, he was killed um, uh, in June 1917 uh, when he and another officer were on horseback. They were uh, supervising the moving of uh, some of the battery and uh, they were hit by by a shell and he and uh, Wall died of wounds. The interesting thing about one of the interesting things about Wall is that his horse survived. The horse's name was Blackie. It's it survived the shell shell wounded. Um, it survived the war, and it was said that uh, when when the uh, uh, when his Wall, Wall's will was read, uh, he, he he'd asked his mother if she would um, bury uh, his medals with Blackie. And after the war, his mother actually bought the horse and took it back to, to the northwest of England, where it lived for, I think it died in the 19, eventually died in the 1940s. And uh, his burial place is now uh, a listed to grave. grave. Um, I think that was uh, carried out a couple of, a couple of years ago. Wall... After he after he died, his fiancée actually had a memorial window raised for him in St Martin's in Braisted. Uh, it was it was commemorate the commemoration took place in nineteen in nineteen eighteen. Um, <clears throat> she I don't I'm not certain <clears throat> what, what whether she remarried. Yes, yeah, she did eventually remarry in the nineteen thirties. Um, but uh, in the during the Second World War, a V one a uh, bomb fell on, on on the church in Bra close to the church in Bracelet, and <clears throat> and the memorial was destroyed. It was eventually rededicated in the 1950s, but so much of it had been lost that they weren't. They apparently appear not to have remembered who the the um, uh, window uh, commemorated, and they all they found was some pieces of glass which had part of the name of the of his fiance's father the rector on it so it is now uh, a stained glass window that is commemorating her father and not wall so he he's lost his commemoration the most probably the the most interesting thing about wall was that he was a sort of minor poet and um, <clears throat> he wrote a, a poem called red roses do you mind if I read it? No, so do, do. When princes fought for England's crown, the house that won the most renown and struck the sullen Yorkist down was Lancaster. Her blood-red emblem stricken sore, yet steeped her pallid foe in gore, still stands for England evermore and Lancashire. Now England's blood like water flows, full many a lusty German nose. We win or die who wear the rose of Lancaster. Now this poem got into the newspapers and they uh, it was brought to the attention of, um, this was after his death, and this was brought to the attention of the commanding officer of the 55th West Lancs Division. And he saw those last, those, that last line, we win or die, who wear the rose of Lancaster, and decided to use it as the motto for the division around its uh, 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 around the on the outside of its rose, which it used. Uh, the red rose was its emblem, and so he ha he had this motto put round 
put round it. And thereafter, every uh, burial of a West Lanx division in the in the West Lanx division uh, had on the gravestone it would have the red rose with that phrase we win or die who wear the rose of lancaster from leonard ward around it that is the case for all of the gravestones that now are in the all the cemeteries along the western front where the 55th division was active so you could say that the apart from the bible the person who is most frequently quoted on the Western Front in the cemeteries is Rudyard Kipling. Probably the second most quoted person is this totally unknown young man called Leonard Wall, because there are thousands of gravestones along the Western Front with his poem, part of his poem on it, on them. And finally, Michael, where can people learn more about your research? Um, well, I have a website uh, called greatwarbritishofficers.com. As part of that research project, I had to set up a website with the idea of making freely available everything that I find and write. Uh, and that I put as much on there as possible. There's still a huge amount to get on there. But uh, I'm, I'm slowly getting materials on there. There are at least 30 short articles on there, uh, all about officers in the, in the Great War with the emphasis on life, death and remembrance. Michael, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...